0: I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers & Company from the Archives. Today, an original, England's Jeanette Winterson. Her memoir, Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal, reveals the true story behind her hit first novel, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit. Now she has a new book of ghost stories. Years ago, when I began reading Jeanette Winterson's first novel, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit, I laughed out loud. And despite the ubiquity of LOL, it actually doesn't happen often for me. It was her witty, deadpan style combined with unconventional content, a coming-of-age story about a foundling raised in an evangelical household. Her mother expects her to become a missionary, a saint, and a model of purity. She does, in fact, become a preacher with her mother's group, Society for the Lost. But then she falls in love with another girl, a church member, and her life takes a new direction. The central character of Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit is named Jeanette, and there are obvious parallels with Winterson's own life. Born in Manchester in 1959, she grew up in Lancashire, the adopted daughter and only child of Pentecostal evangelists. She wrote sermons at eight and has said she can't remember a time when she wasn't preaching. At 16, after getting involved with another girl, she left home. Later, she took a degree at Oxford. Jeanette Winterson was only 25 when Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit was published. It won England's Whitbread Award for Best First Novel. It became an international bestseller and was made into a television miniseries. Winterson wrote the award-winning script. She's always been an ambitious, subversive, and imaginative writer. Her next novel, The Passion, is about a cook in Napoleon's army who falls in love with a beautiful woman, a Venetian cross-dresser born with webbed feet. Then came Sexing the Cherry, an historical fantasy set in the 17th century featuring an extraordinary giantess named Dogwoman and twelve dancing princesses. But it was Jeanette Winterson's 1992 novel, Written on the Body, which brought her not only fame, but notoriety in England. It's a love story set in modern-day London, including an homage to Monique Wittig's Le Corps lesbienne, where the lover obsessively tracks the inside of the body of the beloved. Written on the Body was translated into 16 languages. In 1993, the literary magazine Granta named Winterson one of the best young British novelists. In 2018, she was awarded the CBE, or Commander of the Order of the British Empire, for services to literature. About a decade ago, she turned again to her own life in a remarkably candid account of growing up with the woman she calls Mrs. Winterson, her adoptive mother. Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal reveals the more disturbing side of that childhood, while still being amazingly funny, and then takes us forward into the present and Winterson's search for love, belonging, and a mother. Jeanette Winterson's most recent fiction includes Frankenstein, a reimagining of Mary Shelley's gothic novel for the IT era, and The Gap of Time, a modern retelling of Shakespeare's A Winter's Tale. Now she has a new book, Night Side of the River, just in time for Halloween. A collection of ghost stories mixed with her own supernatural encounters. I spoke to Jeanette Winterson from the CBC's London studio in twenty twelve. Your adoptive mother, Mrs. Winterson, as you often call her, she seems to have been a lonely person, though she she discouraged friendship and social contact. What do you think that was about?
1: she was the kind of woman who didn't want anyone to know her except for the, the one person in the world that she designated as suitable for that mighty task. And unfortunately that one person in the world was me. Um, nobody else, not my father, not any of her family. She was solitary. She was, she was like a gray tower. Um, but at the same time living with her was like living with the secret service because although she didn't want anybody to know her, she wanted to know everything. Um, about everybody else.
0: When, when did you become aware that she wanted you to be a companion for her?
1: She said so from the very beginning. She said it was why she had adopted me, um, that she wanted me to be a, a pal to her. because She had no friends, so that was very important. And she really believed... Um, that i would be the person who would change her life and the sad thing is i could have done it you know i was like charlie in the chocolate factory i could have been that golden ticket that took her out of that life that she hated but i came in the wrong package What do you mean? (laughs) I mean, you know how it is that sometimes the thing, the miracle, the thing that you want to change your life is actually sitting right beside you. Sometimes it's you yourself. And because it just doesn't come in the form that you can recognise, or you're reluctant to see it in the shape that it is, um, you reject it completely. You know, it's like all those fairy stories where you know some filthy, ugly goblin pops up and, and the heroine says, yuck, don't come near me, I don't want you. And of course the filthy, ugly goblin turns out to be the guardian of the treasure or will take you to the princess or any of that stuff um, we, we lived in that kind of fairy tale atmosphere in that there I, I'd been plucked out from under a stone somewhere with no visible origins and there was a part of me that she wanted to be transforming magic even but she just couldn't accept it because I just didn't tick all the boxes.
0: So she, if she had kissed you, you might have turned into the princess or something.
1: <laughs> she could have tried. That would have been... Yeah, then would my whole life novel might approach. have been different. Yes, yes. You know, if she hadn't put me in the shorts and called me Paul at the beginning, you know, who knows where we
0: would have got. <laughs> I was thinking more if she hadn't put you in the coal hole. If she or, hadn't put or, me or in the coal and hole. And beaten you, then, you know, then things might have been different.
1: Yeah, they might, but she could never recognise it. And even after you *No know, Oranges* was written, and and she was so rejecting of that book, and then then we lost contact with each other. Um, I think she brooded all her life on how she had been cheated. Um, by this, 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 this terrible wile of the devil and that she got me in, instead of the person that she really wanted. So it was very sad for her. I mean look, I got away and got a life. She didn't. She stayed at home, crouched under that gloomy shelf. She was way too big for her life, but it was all she
0: had. Happiness versus unhappiness was in, in a sense one of the main conflicts between you and, and, and Mrs. Winterson. How do you think she saw happiness? She didn't believe in happiness. I don't think she thought happiness existed. Um, If
1: you'd asked her why we were on Earth, she would have replied, it's to suffer, she had no doubt about that and the only happiness was always postponed or it would happen after the apocalypse uh, when jesus came and redeemed everybody in that future state she believed she would be happy but happiness on earth if if attainable at all was 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 transient and fleeting and i think she rather despised it i didn't think i don't think she thought it was it was um, a worthy aim or emotion or expression of the self i think she thought suffering was 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 much nobler and also more true to the situation of life. And I didn't. I was a happy child. I couldn't help it. I don't know why, given that I was spending quite a lot of time locked in the coal hole or locked out of the house on the front step. Um, but I was not unhappy. And people often say to me, oh God, you must have had a terrible childhood. It was so abusive. And I get rather angry and I think my childhood wasn't abusive. Um, it was in many ways, uh, for me, the only childhood that would have worked. I mean, what else would have
0: made me a writer? Oh, we'll, we'll talk about that soon. But <laughs> I, I was interested to learn that Mrs. Winterson didn't believe in, in the traditional Christian resurrection. I mean, that was, yes, it would, it would lead to happiness, but she thought that once life leaves a body, it becomes another form of energy. And this it seems quite remarkable for, for a fundamentalist. Did, did it surprise you to learn that?
1: It did. But Mrs Winterson was her own woman and she invented some theology and she disregarded the bits that she didn't like. And she was very intelligent. She was a great reader. And, you know, she was uh, a young woman in the war and she had been to the movies as they all did. And she'd watched the Pathé newsreels um, of Hiroshima and the atomic bomb. She knew all about the Manhattan Project and Oppenheimer because that was their reality and it wasn't their history. It was their daily world. And she'd seen the atomic bomb go off and she had realized a very profound um, very simple truth but she really understood it she, that the nature of the world was not mass that it was energy and this made complete sense sir, in terms of, of, of her own rather peculiar theology because she thought that when the end came, of course, this mass would all fall away and we would return to energy. And she, she'd always hated the doctrine of the resurrection of the body because she hated her body she loathed it. Um, so she would be only too pleased to think that she would finally lay it to rest, but she could go on into some new transformed life.
0: And she hated her body because she was a large woman or just she hated the physical altogether?
1: She was very large, but she was she was very ill. I mean, she really did have the the thyroid condition, the prolapse, the enlarged heart, the ulcerated leg. Um, she was always having enemas and suppositories and dosing herself with purg- purgatives and smoking herself to death because she thought it would keep her weight down. You know, that was a popular myth, I think, in those days. And she just never comfortable in her own skin. Uh, She didn't want anything to do with my father physically. I mean, she clearly hated sex. I think they had very unsatisfactory sexual relations at the beginning of their marriage, and then never again. But then I suppose if God's going to find you a baby, you don't have to have sex with your husband. So that was handy. But what she didn't pass on to me was that hatred of the body. I've always rather liked my body and and being in it and living in it, and I enjoyed the physical world, Um, but for her, it was simply another burden, a huge burden that she
0: wanted to leave behind. Yeah, you describe how she she would stay up all night just to avoid sharing a bed or bedroom with with your father. Yeah. What what do you think was the attraction between your parents? Or, I mean, if not attraction, why do you think they got married? I think like many women of that generation, um, she had had freedom during the war.
1: She was a woman for whom there would be very little opportunity. You know, those those women coming out of the war and then into the 50s really had nothing to look forward to. It was a terrible decade for women. Um, they'd seen a taste of freedom and then they were forced back into the home, both in in, in, in the United States, in Britain, I'm sure in Canada as well, just simply to... to make some sense of, of normality for their men and for their menfolk and for that homecoming after the terribleness of the war and she hated that and I think she thought that if she married my father she would at least have some life of her own she could have her own house and her own independence she wouldn't be subject to her own father who she hated. Um, he was a bully and a brute uh, and he abused her mother and he abused her so she wanted to get away that was for sure and I think the attractions of that were greater than, uh, than the anxieties about what married life would really really be
0: like and and mr winterson your your adoptive father was uh, he did serve in the army in the second world war he did yes yes he
1: was in the dj landings
0: and and then mended roads and shoveled coal and, and, and can you tell me a bit about him
1: yeah, he was he was a labourer of one kind or another all his life because he, he he was born in 1919. You know, my parents were elderly when they adopted me by by the standards of the day. Nowadays, you know, people have children much later. It's nothing to have a child in your forties, but my father was forty when I came along. Um, and he'd, his own childhood had been very impoverished, very poor. He'd been brought up in Liverpool, in the docks. You know, he was he was born just after the First World War, one of those celebratory First World War babies when all the women got pregnant just in time to raise the sons for the Second World War, which is exactly what happened. Uh, his father was a drunk. He used to take him to the pub down the docks and then forget that he was there and come reeling home. And you know, his mother would say, what have you done with Jack? And he'd say, I've left him in the pub and have to go and get him. And um, so in rough, not much love, you know, a difficult life, left school when he was 12. He wasn't very bright, just naturally not very bright, and he, he hadn't had the education, and Mrs Winterson was ferociously bright. So they were ill-matched there, and she was always going to be top dog. Um, and he had a sweet nature, uh, uh, apart from the, you know, the brutality that he had suffered, which then came out in the way that he did used to knock her around at the beginning, and always me when I was a child. Um, and then it started again when he remarried. But it wasn't actually intrinsic to him. It was it was just that um, horrible daily brutality that a lot of those working class men experienced, both as growing up and then during the war.
0: And, and you were beaten as a child. I mean, you wouldn't just yes. be locked out of the house overnight or locked in the coal hole. What, was there a reason for this or, or how, how did do you... you know? Well, there was always some reason. There was always some misdemeanour.
1: I mean, I, I was very good at getting it wrong. Um, but Mrs. Winston always separated uh, the crime and the punishment because she didn't want to hit me herself. I don't know why. So she, I think she thought it was it was the sort of thing that, that the, the man ought to do. So whatever happened, I would then be told to wait until my father returned from shift work so that he could dole out a suitable punishment. And she'd always say whether it was to be slapped with his hand or whether it was a cane and whether it was a belt and how many strokes. Um, so she was in charge of it, but uh, she, she never actually administered it herself. So I would just wait for this to happen. Of course, by then you've forgotten completely and you don't care. So if you have a rebellious nature, which I did, and, and also an independent nature, um, it, it doesn't make you contrite. It just makes you full of contempt because you think, but this happened a long time ago. Why are you doing it now? Uh, it makes you worse, not better. So it had no effect at all
0: when 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 you look back <laughs> when when you look back on that now i mean, how do you think your parents saw those beatings
1: perfectly normal i mean this was this was the northern working class in england um in the 1960s, and it was a routinely brutal world. Everybody hit everybody. Um, men used to knock their wives around, um, and you know, women, when they got the chance, would w- would really go for their husbands. And if it was something like womanizing or spending the housekeeping money on gambling or coming home dead drunk and you know throwing up on the clean kitchen floor, um, then you know they'd hit the husbands. I mean, really, with a rolling pin or with a frying pan, and sometimes knock them out, and the husbands would accept that because they thought they'd deserved it. So nobody really questioned um, that culture of violence, um, which we now find really shocking. I mean, everybody would be carted away. The children would all be with social services, you know, and the men would all be in prison. But that was normal then.
0: Janet winterson your parents were Pentecostals, a branch of fundamentalist Christianity. What got them involved in that church? Misery.
1: I think they'd been married for 12 years and clearly they were not going to find domestic bliss. And... Once my mother did get married, she never worked again outside the home, which was a huge mistake because it turned her already inward looking nature um, in, into a depression and it gave her no outlet for her skills or for her imagination, but she thought a woman should be in the home. You know, this was this was patriarchy at its best, and, and they all believed it. Um, nobody questioned it. And so dad worked outside the home and she worked in the home, terrible for her, and they were miserable. And then the tent crusade came to Accrington. You know, this is a town with nothing to recommend it. It's just some, a little town underneath the Pennine Hills. Uh, everybody knows everybody. And once you've been round it once, you know exactly what you're gonna get. There's no more surprises. So along comes the Tenth Crusade and there's a a charismatic preacher of the kind that we know now from the evangelical rallies and they thought, this is exciting. And they, unsurprisingly, both gave their lives to Jesus and began to find a life within the church, which actually was the saving of their marriage because then she had interests um, and Dad had people who actually liked him and appreciated him. So they weren't locked in this misery with each other, which is all they had before. And you were drawn into it as well. I mean, you were. Well, I had no choice because that was my whole purpose in life. Um, I mean, I know that she she then felt the devil had led her to the wrong crib. Um,
0: and this was you mean, the, the, Your infant crib when she, you were adopted.
1: <laughs> yes, I mean, she was sure that she'd been cheated at the last moment. Again, just like the fairy story, you know, where, 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 where the evil fairy um, swaps the beautiful baby for some monkey. Um, you end up taking him at home. I think she thought that's what had happened to her. <laughs> There'd be some awful story switch at the last moment. She never really recovered from it. But um, quite apart from the devil doing the wrong crib work, um, I had no choice because she wanted me to be a missionary. She thought that I would serve the Lord. She always believed that I would have some great purpose in life, um, that I wasn't going to be stuck in Accrington. So I was there to live out some of her on Live Life in the way that we do for our parents and we don't really have any choice about that. Um, I was going to be somebody, I was going to do something. You know, it all worked out the way she planned but just not in the way she intended.
0: Oh, that's an interesting distinction. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) One of the profound ways you were a disappointment to your your mother was when you were in your mid-teens, you had a sexual relationship with another girl you were subjected to an exorcism by members mm. of the church and and you, you don't spend a lot of time on that in in, the, in your in your memoir but what you do relate sounds harrowing i mean how did that change things between you and your mother i was never able
1: to trust her again um it is my inclination to love i'm lucky there because i think for whatever reason i did end up with quite quite a cheerful nature and i wanted to love her and i did love her but after that Uh, I felt utterly betrayed the person who was as closest to me as as in in many ways um, and who with whom I had a very combative relationship, but also a a vital relationship or so it seemed to me, um, could do that and do it do it secretively. I had no idea that she was going to do it and, and after that you can't trust someone again. Not when it's been a love relationship and I, you know that's the same whether it's a parent or it's a romance or even whether it's a close friend. That betrayal is something that you never get over.
0: You describe your mother as, as a great reader but she clearly had a very conflicted relationship with the, with the written word. Could you read from Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal? I will.
1: This is chapter eight, The Apocalypse. Mrs Winterson was not a welcoming woman. If anyone knocked at the door, she ran down the lobby and shoved the poker through the letterbox. I reminded her that angels often come in disguise and she said that was true, but they didn't come disguised in crimpoline. Part of the problem was that we had no bathroom and she was ashamed of this. Not many people did have bathrooms but I was not allowed to have friends from school in case they wanted to use the toilet. Then they'd have to go outside and then they would discover that we had no bathroom. In fact, that was the least of it. A bigger challenge for unbelievers than a drafty encounter with an outside loo was what was waiting for them when they got there. We were not allowed books but we lived in a world of print Mrs Winterson wrote out exhortations and stuck them all over the house. Under my coat peg, a sign said, Think of God, not the dog. Over the gas oven, on a loaf wrapper, it said, Man shall not live by bread alone. But in the outside loo, directly in front of you as you went through the door, was a placard, and those who stood up read, Linger not at the Lord's business! And those who sat down read, he shall melt thy bowels like wax. This was wishful thinking. My mother was having trouble with her bowels. It was something to do with the loaf of white slice that we couldn't live by. When I went to school, my mother put quotes from the scriptures in my hockey boots. At meal times, there was a little scroll from the promise box by each of our plates. A promise box is a box with Bible texts rolled up inside it, like the jokes you get in Christmas crackers, but serious. And the little rolls stand on end and you close your eyes and pick one out. It can be comforting. Let not your hearts be troubled and neither let them be afraid. Or it can be frightening. The sins of the fathers shall be visited on the children. But cheery or depressing, it was all reading. And reading was what I wanted to do. Fed words and shod with them. Words became clues. Piece by piece I knew that they would lead me somewhere else. The only time that Mrs Winterson liked to answer the door was when she knew that the Mormons were coming round. And then she waited in the lobby and before they had dropped the knocker she flung open the door waving her Bible and warning them of eternal damnation. This was confusing for the Mormons because they thought that they were in charge of eternal damnation but Mrs. Winterson was a better candidate for the job.
0: <laughs> Jeanette Winterson reading from her memoir, Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal. There there weren't a lot of books in your house, but, but you say that when you were around seven years old, Mrs. Winterson read uh, Jane Eyre to you.
1: She did, um, which makes me suspect that she had read many more of the classics um, than she ever let on. And... I loved Jane Eyre and I loved it that she read it to me. She was a very good reader. She was confident and dramatic. I mean, when she read the Bible to us, which she did twice a day um, to me and my father, she always read Standing Up and she read it as though it had just been written, which for her, perhaps it had. So it was lovely when she was reading Jane Eyre. And I was captivated by this story. And it was only later that I discovered that she had completely reinvented the end, because in the Winterson version of Jane Eyre, Jane actually marries St John Rivers and goes off to be a missionary. And now no, re- dis- re-
0: remind us who St John Rivers is.
1: <laughs> well, <remembering laughs> I, I the just story- remember
0: Rochester. And I yeah, know. there's the
1: there's there's sort of the, the brooding hunk, Mr. Rochester, and, and you know, everything was going well, and Jane was going to marry him, and then she discovered that that um, he had the madwoman up in the attic old Bertha, um, who was the crazy wife that he'd stuffed up there, so he wasn't really free to marry Jane, so naturally enough she has a Victorian fit of the vapours, um, and decides that she will she will go off and stay with the Rivers family, and then St John Rivers, who is a sort of milk and water character, um, a clergyman who wants nothing better than to go out and convert the heathen, suggests that they should get married, and this looks like a good idea at the time, thank God it doesn't work out like that, but in, in Wintersome World, it had to work out like that and so Mrs. Winston simply reinvented the Bronte text, and she did it while she was turning the pages, inventing extempore in the style. Um, and only when I read it myself did I realise what she had done. It was a great shock. <laughs> what was your reaction? <laughs> well, I was outraged, but I also realised then that you could invent anything, and. Really, it was going to be to do with the, with the confidence with which the, you, you delivered your inventions. And I thought this would help me to be a writer because I thought, well, I can be a pirate and a buccaneer. I can go straight and rip through those 19th century classics and read what
0: I want, take what I want and, and do it myself. And I, I read somewhere that Jane Eyre is one of your favorite books. Yes, I love Jane. It's a why? wonderful story. <laughs> well, why? Why is oh, it a because of that particular quirk to it?
1: No, I mean. it's it, it's so well written. It's so good at, at getting to the heart of a, a psychological, moral, and emotional dilemma. Um, and and again, it's about it, it's about trust and it's about self respect. It's actually a very feminist book because Jane really wants to decide for herself, and she doesn't want to be forced into a marriage with a man that she can't respect. And that's what's really important about Jane It's not that she's going to give up sex or give up her heart or deny her passion. Uh, She needs both to have self-respect and to respect the person that she's going to spend her life with. And that's a strong
0: message for a woman. I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. For the most part, Mrs. Winterson seemed to fear books. I mean, I mean, and, and, and for your sake as well. I mean, what, what was she afraid of? It's a good question.
1: She used to say to me, um, the trouble with a book is that you never know what's in it till it's too late. <laughs> and I used to think, well, too late for what? Um, what will happen? But of course she was right, because by the time you are in a book, the thing is, is working on you. And somewhere she knew... Um, that the power of a book, the power of a text would actually change the way that you think, change the way you imagine, perhaps change your whole world. She knew it. And because I suspected that there was something in these books that she didn't want me to have, of course, that's where I wanted to be. It's the classic rebellion, isn't it? So when I began to work my way through English literature in prose, A to Z, which I did in the library, um, I realised, of course, um, that everything was in those books and I could find it. Of course, she had a great taste in murder mysteries. You know, she yeah. was nothing but full of contradictions. Why did she allow...
0: Why did, what did she like about them? Why did she allow herself that one?
1: Oh, she liked a good story, I think. So she used to make me go down to the library to drag back these sackfuls of Ellery Queen and Raymond Chandler. I mean, she had quite good taste, as well as all the schlock stuff um, that I used to come home with. Um, and when I challenged her about her own taste in murder mysteries, whereas I was not allowed to read fiction, she said, if you know there's a body coming, it's not so much of a shock. <laughs> So it was something all all about protecting the mind from these influences which would shock you um,
0: and which would force you to think differently. Because you'd be seduced by the characters yes, and, and yes. once you inhabit their world. And, yes, yeah. and because she read the Bible all of the time, she knew about
1: the power of the Word. And she knew, you know, as in the Gospel of St John, that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. You know, when you think about that as a remark, it's very powerful that the Word was God and, of course, that's what I came to believe, but in a different way to the way that she'd intended.
0: You say there were, there were six books in your house and, and of course, the Bible and uh, several books relating to the Bible. Mm. But, but one mm. of them was curious. Yes, it was very
1: themed. It was very themed, <laughs>
0: yes. <laughs> but one of them was uh, Thomas Mallory's The Mort d'Arthur or The Death of King Arthur. How, yes. did, how did it get there? Well, you know, Mrs
1: Winterson loved her own mother, she did. And her mother had been a genteel woman who had some money, um, well-bred, well-brought up, and she had married a seductive thug, given him her money, watched him womanise it away. He was he was much more of a brute, thick-cut, energetic, um, exciting, I suppose, but ultimately a very bad choice um, for a sensitive, um, rather well-bred woman to marry. Um, so Mrs Winterson being, uh, being this... Mass of of, of contradictions and you know, caught caught in that life as well. Um always wanted to honour the memory of her own mother and the mother's brother had given us this copy of Thomas Mallory's Mort d'Arthur because they were educated people. Um, So Mrs W felt that she had to keep it although she didn't want me to find it but of course I did and in there are the stories of Lancelot and Guinevere of the Grail, legend of Camelot, of King Arthur, wonderful stuff if you're a child and also perfect for a child like me because I was always searching for something that was lost and that is that is the quintessential Grail story. yeah because you say you continue to be
0: inspired by Grail stories
1: I am I love them. I mean you you find I think as a writer and I hope as a reader, some key stories that that seem to um, define and mark your life in some way these places where you can put yourself for safekeeping and texts that you go on working with because they continue to prompt understandings about who you are. They are talismanic. Um, it's it's something which is very personal, very private. It's a dialogue between yourself and the book. It's an intimacy. It's like lover's talk. Um, and something that you never tire of and you can keep going back to this. And I found it so um, with that text. And I thought maybe that would change, you know, and I would get over the idea that there's always something. Uh, that you're searching for that you never quite find, which is the Holy Grail, but I've never got over it.
0: And the library in your hometown of Accrington, uh, you, you were saying you were, you were working through English prose A to Z, but one of the books you came upon was T.S. Was Eliot's Murder in the Cathedral. I mean, it's because your, your mother had ordered it thinking it was a murder mystery and she liked anything that was bad for the Pope, as you mm. put it. <laughs> but, but the book marked a kind of turning point for you. What, what happened?
1: Well, two things happened. I hadn't been including poetry in my reading because there's quite a lot to get through anyway with English literature in prose A to Z. I mean, I mean, fortunately, you start with Austen and you get the Brontes pretty quickly. It's good at the beginning of the alphabet. You get George Eliot, Daniel Defoe. It gets a bit worse later, but um, uh, so I was I was doing my best to get along the shelves. So this was an old-fashioned 19th-century library built by money from the, the Carnegie Foundation. It was built in 1907. In those days, when you know, working-class people were supposed to better them themselves through the reading of literature and the classics and they would go to extension lectures and you know try and improve their minds that was seen as perfectly all right because at that stage culture wasn't relative you know so elvis and shakespeare weren't assumed to be equivalents um so th- there was this wonderful well-stocked library uh, perfect for me quiet contemplative and also full of the murder mysteries so i went down there and i took out murder in the cathedral for her and i thought well this is a bit thin and murder mysteries are usually quite fat So I opened it and I saw it was written in verse and I hadn't been reading any poetry at all. And the first thing I read was the line in it, which where Eliot says, um, this is one moment, but know that another shall pierce you with a sudden painful joy. And it made me cry because I was having a terrible time right then. I, you know, I was—I'd fallen in love with the girl. I was—I was going to have to leave home. Um, I felt that I'd failed in some way. That I was going to be thrown out again. And you know, if you're adopted, you always think it's your fault. And because why didn't your mother love you enough to keep you? You must have done something really wrong, or you must be something really wrong. Um, and even though you can intellectually rationalise that away, you can't rationalise the feeling away. And so here was another family breaking up. And Mrs. Winterson said it was the devil and the wrong crib and that I was irredeemably bad um, and so I blame myself and all, for all for all my chutzpah and and, and courage and uh, you know both both, both the, the real and the bravado I, I was pretty scared and I opened this and read it and it made me cry because I thought well It was like a message in a bottle. Here was somebody speaking to me. Uh, I didn't know this T.S. Eliot person was. Never heard of him. I thought he might be related to George Eliot at that point. So I was only 16. Um, But it seemed a very powerful message to me and something that I could hold on to. And that's when I started reading Eliot. And it was a turning point because I thought, right, well... Um, These books are a safe place. Maybe nothing else in my life is, but these are, and they're not remote. They're not elitist. I didn't think about it like that, but I certainly thought they weren't remote. They were there in my hand, and they were what I needed.
0: And it's interesting that you're doing English prose A to Z. mean, do you think of yourself as as a linear... No. <laughs> no, I don't either. I don't either. That's why I'm asking.
1: <laughs> no, but I, you know, there, I am quite systematic when I want to know something. Um, I will just plow my way through everything necessary, you know, to, if, I, if there's something I'm searching for. And I didn't know how to educate myself. So I thought, well, if I, if I do it randomly, I won't have any idea what's going on. So I thought the best thing was just to start with A um, and doggedly go through the shelves.
0: Once you started reading poetry, one of the poems that you, you loved was uh, Andrew Marvell's, the, the, the 17th century poet, To His Coy mm. Mistress, that, that mm. begins with that well-known line, had we but world enough in time. What did you like about it so much? What it, it grabbed you? Well everything, is so sexy, it's such a good seduction poem and I do
1: recommend anybody listening in to you know, go and find it and read it. You must read it out loud though um, because then you get the full feel of it Be, um, because he's he's trying to seduce this young woman, you know, had we but world enough in time, this coyness lady, we no crime. And then he goes on to tell her exactly why it is a crime um, and that the worms will try her long preserved virginity. So, you know, she's really ready to give in by the end of it. But, at the end of it, he does something really remarkable where he's talking about time and and I don't know, exuberance of life, that we only have this short life, and we just have to take it because it's all we've got, which I loved. I loved the energy of it. And he says, um, let us roll all our strength and all our sweetness up into one ball, and tear our pleasures with rough strife through the iron gates of life. Thus though we cannot make our son stand still yet we can make him run and I thought the idea of making your son run was a good one that you would just throw yourself at life and that the mistakes didn't matter and yes you would be hurt and, and you you might be broken but It would be worth it because you would have this energetic confrontation with life instead of just petering out in some um, timid and tame way and never knowing whether you should have taken those risks. So it was really poetry like that which encouraged me to take the risks and think, you know, I will... I'll throw everything on this dice I'll get away, I'll try and make a life um, I won't stay here and at some point you have to make that decision and get to the boundaries of common sense and cross over And you, and
0: you began to memorise literary texts as you just re- revealed uh, what, what, what did that do for you? Oh, it's very good for your brain
1: it, it may stave off Alzheimer's in later life this is what I hope because I go on uh, learning them I, I like to learn them, I like to have this, this inside library because you know there was a time and one of the stories in the book when Mrs Winston, in another of her acts of betrayal discovered that I was smuggling books into the house and putting them underneath my mattress and uh, if you have a, a single bed standard size and a collection of paperback standard size you can fit 75 per layer under the mattress. Well I did but um, even if Mrs Winston hadn't been a member of the Secret Service and suspicious minded she couldn't fail to notice that her daughter's bed was rising visibly. (laughs) Uh, It was like the princess and the pea. So one night when I was sleeping closer to the ceiling than to the floor she came in with her flashlight. She always had a flashlight about her person somewhere and she saw that there was a book sticking out the corner of the bed. This was terrible because it was D.H. Lawrence uh, Women in Love and uh, she knew that Lawrence was a Satanist and a pornographer. So she pulled it out, and then the whole lot began to come. And I fell off the top of the bed, and there were books everywhere, and me everywhere, and the dog barking, and my dad coming in in his pyjamas. Absolute chaos. And she opened the window of the little bedroom and started throwing the books into our backyard, which she did. And I was trying to grab some, and everybody was shouting at everyone else. And then she rushed downstairs, and she got the the, the paraffin, I think you'd call it kerosene, stove, and she poured... Uh, this fuel all over the books and she set them on fire and I'll never forget it because um, it it was January and it was a freezing Saturnian January night Um, and against that cold and dark with these orange flames leaping up and there were my books fueling that fire and in the morning, they were just little scraps of paper blowing around the yard and the back alley, which may be a clue to I write as I do because I just picked up all these scraps of paper, kept them in my pocket. And I thought then I thought, well, look, everything that's outside of me she can take away. and I can't be sure. That there's anything there it's this business of what can you hold on to what's safe and i thought well if i started memorizing text i'd have my library inside me um, not outside me and she wouldn't be able to destroy it and i think that was quite a good lesson because you know whatever's inside you really does belong to you um and fortunately none of us have had to suffer exile um, or war or displacement uh, in the way that so many people have in the world but if we did what would we be able to take with us what would be in our heads what would be in our hearts and what could we use to comfort ourselves um, when we had nothing at all and so I think memorizing stuff like that really does it gives you a very calm uh, centered self uh, where you have this within you that you can draw on at any moment
0: and it was after that loss that you decided you could write your own books I mean do you know where that confidence came from
1: well, no, I think it came out of the rage of the moment. Looking at that pile of paper, charred and destroyed in the backyard, and thinking that I would create the thing that, that I had lost, and it wasn't about wanting um, fame, fortune, or recognition. Um, you know, it was. I didn't care if I was going to end up like. You know, Keats, who put on his tombstone one whose name is written in water. That didn't matter. Uh, I just wanted to be able to uh, create these stories, the language um, that I found to be the best place for me. But, you know, it's quite scary coming back to that material because 25 years have made me, I hope, more compassionate, uh, more understanding, certainly, of Mrs Winterson. And I felt that by the end of it, I could really lay those ghosts to rest, that I could forgive her, and that I'd learned something uh, about about women, about limitations, about boundaries, about desire, about all of those things that I played with, but I'd understood them very clearly through the writing of this book.
0: I'm not exactly sure of the chronology here, whether it was before, I think it was before the writing, but maybe it was even related to it, but You went through a dark time, I mean, a love of life, uh, the pursuit of happiness matters to you. And and, and then you went through this difficult time and and came to a point where you tried to kill yourself. I mean, can you talk about the darkness that you were experiencing at that time? Yes.
1: I've always liked that story where the devil takes Jesus up onto the pinnacle. It's before Jesus' ministry begins, and he says, OK, if you're the son of God, just throw yourself off, because surely all the angels will come and catch you. They won't let you be dashed to the earth. And there's something very seductive, uh, romantic even, about throwing yourself off the roof of your own life. Um, it has a and a flamboyance to it and a risk to it, and I've always been good at risk. and there've been throughout my life moments where it looked like i was going to throw myself off the roof of it in 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 terms of breakdown or just risking too much or getting involved with the wrong people doing the wrong things you know there's a there's a kind of recklessness in me which isn't always conducive um, <laughs> to staying alive let alone being happy and When I went into the breakdown, which I hadn't expected, I talk about it in the book as like being in a haunted house, in that I was never sure whether the thing would strike. You know, some days you feel absolutely fine and you think, oh, it's over. And then it's as though something hits you, it winds you in the chest or the stomach. It, you feel as though you're knocked to the floor by some invisible force and underneath some giant wave and you can barely hold on to the side of the boat to save yourself from drowning. I used to hold on to pieces of furniture, I used to be on my knees, just holding on to something, um, doing the only thing I could do, the only thing I've ever done that's made sense to me, which was reciting lines of poetry. And these poetry, these lines were like ropes. I would hold on to them, but they they weren't always... Enough. Um, So the mental anguish was very great. And I didn't want to take any pills because I thought, if this is going to kill me, I want to die in my own way. I've lived in my own way. I can't hand this over to the medical profession. I don't want to be placated. And that's the right word. I I want to live through this or not live at all. And and that was the part of me that was absolutely lucid. It was a clear cold and lucid. And one one day, simply too great. And you don't think I will now go into the garage and try and kill myself. Um, you don't think at all. You simply do it um, because you can't do anything else. Um, so that's what I tried to do. And my cat was in the garage with me um, and really if my cat hadn't been I would have succeeded because my cat saved my life, A cat jumped on me and was scratching my face carbon monoxide is a heavy gas and yeah, it goes to the floor first um, so that's why if you fall unconscious um, you're doomed rather more quickly and the cat was up high and was just not going to let this happen it was extraordinary and then I, you come to and the moment you come to the some survival instinct takes over because we'll survive at any cost that's the animal So I just threw the doors open and I was out there on the gravel uh, thinking I'm alive. And that felt like the most miraculous feeling Uh, and knowing that something enormous had been gone through because I don't think you do that twice. Um, And in a way that was the beginning of getting better or rather confronting uh, all all of the darkness that had got me there.
0: And and there's a, a sort of a parallel story in, in Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal. There's your relationship with your adoptive mother, Mrs. Winterson, and then there's the mm. another parent-child relationship. I mean, Mrs. Winterson had said that your mother was dead. and then She had. You disca- she would, wouldn't she, though? I mean, if she, could, <laughs> if she was going to
1: marry off Jane Eyre to St. John Rivers, there'd be no problem having a dead mother. <laughs>
0: So, but but, how did you feel about this? I mean, after a complicated search, you were able to find and meet with your birth mother. Yes. It, how did you feel when it came time for your, your
1: first meeting? Dreadful. Um, I felt physically sick I mean, when, when, when the cab was pulling up outside the house I had a, at first I had a hysterical impulse to sing cheer up ye saints of God which is a song we used to sing at the church um, because you know, evangelicals are always cheerful and I thought <laughs> no, no, that's the wrong childhood it's the wrong mother, I don't know where I am so there was this awful feeling of not knowing and, and thinking who's going to open the door what will I see um, and, and, and heart beating dry mouthed terror and, of course, I'd gone as a baby. Um, the point with the parent is that they are a grown-up, so they have some skills of self-reflection, whereas the baby knows nothing but loss. You know, the baby is just a bundle of, of, of sensation and experience in that in that moment, but something has gone in that's enormous because it, it is more, it's like a branding iron. It marks you, but you've no idea what it is. So I was really... In the state of that 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 small child again, I think I just none of not, nothing about me now can deal with this moment of her opening the door, and then she did, and of course it was all right, and and you know I discovered all kinds of things. You know, I've always thought of myself as a as a as a, as a lone wolf and an only child and a rather solitary and independent person, and um, you know, I discovered that I had hundreds of cousins and uh, have siblings, was. and the- yeah, I have, and my mother was one of ten children, and they all were ballroom dancing champions and lived to be 100 you know, it's terrifying um, and, and you have a whole different view of who you are uh, and then you find out that no no matter how much you think you can overwrite the, the, the biology the DNA um, the body code uh, it's
0: still there How has your sense of self changed with, with, with this new aspect to your life?
1: Um, I feel I feel settled I think we both do she and I Look, when you meet your your parent late in life, uh, it's not an instant family, at least I didn't find it so. And in fact, a lot of people have written to me about this because they've felt enormous relief by me being able to say, um, this isn't a, a kind of pink Hollywood ending where everything is lovely and, and, and the right colour and the right feeling. It's, it's complicated. And you know, I didn't think, wow, here's my mother and, and, and fall in love and, and then everything was all right. You're still strangers to each other and the connections are difficult. The whole thing is difficult. But I think what we both feel is a sense of relief that she doesn't have to ask herself every single day of her life what happened. You know, and there's no mother wants to give away her child. That's that's clear to me. Now, no mother does that without deep anguish Um and heartbreak and the question that never goes away so to have it settled is a good thing you know and i'd say to people now as we're contemplating this you know um don't expect too much and don't beat yourself up if it goes wrong but be glad that you can settle the story because somewhere that is healing in itself how much in touch are you now we come and we go. We go in and out. You know, sometimes we can't bear it and sometimes we have another goal. And I think it will be like that for a while. I mean, she's read the books. Obviously, I showed it to her before it was published and she knew about the bits that were going to be about her um, and was comfortable with that. So I didn't want to make her uncomfortable. But, I, you know, the last line of the book is, I have no idea what happens next, which is true. <laughs> <laughs> you know and I'm a control freak like all adopted children you know look what happened the one time we weren't in control how wrong can it go so you know for me to say I don't know what happens next is is also an admission of where I've got to now I mean I, I have got just a lot more relaxed about things which is nice um and a lot more accepting I think you um, know And just trying to understand people's situations, however hopeless, and understand my own. um, And and not be too quick uh, to try and uh, either to judge um, or or in some way to try and close the narrative. There is no closure. And I know that in my fiction, but I'm now sure that it's the case in life that nothing's ever really finished. It just goes on uh, as long as we do
0: people always say that that, you know people don't change but it sounds like you actually have i mean in terms of being more forgiving of yourself and and others and and uh, more accepting as you say and
1: yes i think change is important nothing is solid that's for sure um as everything changes around us, why wouldn't we change too? I think it's probably healthy if we can, and if we do, and if we can admit to being wrong and, you know, without beating yourself up, you know, that's the difference, that you can say, God, I made a complete mess of that, or I was in the wrong, or I didn't do this properly. You know, I say in the book somewhere that the things that I regret in life um, are not errors of judgment, but failures of feeling. And... You know, feeling in that sense was was hard for me. I mean, there was quite a lot of me that was held in, not because I haven't been a good friend and an enthusiastic lover. I've been both of those, but there was the core self um was not available. and And I think that was a product of of being brought up in the way that I was, and um just having to save myself, you know, you, you have to protect yourself in some way. And that has changed. A lot of those defences have gone, a lot of that protective layer has gone. You see, I think that's what happened, what led up to the garage. Um, I couldn't go on protecting myself. I couldn't live in that way. It had to go. And I wouldn't have been able to write anything else. You know, you just become a parody of yourself as a writer if you can't change and you can't develop. You just go on doing the same old stuff. And what use is that?
0: There's a wonderful moment in Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal where you offer up the idea that Mrs. Winterson was just the person to raise someone like you. Yes, perfect. <laughs> how, how did you get there? I mean, after this picture and this book, I mean,
1: how did... Well, it's always useful to read yourself as a fiction as well as a fact and, and, and to see yourself as a continuing narrative and, and, and what would have happened if it had been a different narrative. And, you know, when I met Anne... My mother, I, I did have to ask myself a hard question. I thought, "What well, would you rather be, Jeanette? Suppose it had been different. You, probably, you wouldn't have had the education. I'm sure you wouldn't have gone to Oxford. Would you have had the books? No, I don't think you would. And I thought, well, I would rather be this me, um, for all its craziness and its difficulty, um, its impossibility, than than any other me. And I realized that." Uh, Mrs. Winterson had been able to give me that. You know, every, every there is always a gift, um, as 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 well as the punishments and the withdrawals. There was a gift, and it was a dark gift, but not a useless one. And she gave me a, a world that I could be in that I had to that I had to reinvent, and that worked for my mind. It worked for the kind
0: of person I am. It's a delight to have the chance to talk to you again. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you. Jeanette Winterson in London in 2012. Her memoir, Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal, and her recent novel, *Frankenstein* are available in paperback from Vintage. Her new book, Nightside of the River, Ghost Stories, is published by Grove. Today's show was produced by Mary Stinson. Katie Swales is also producer. The associate producer is Melissa Gismondi. Technical operations by Will Yar. The senior producer of Writers & Company is Sandra Rabinovich. You can also hear us on our website at cbc.ca slash writersandcompany and anytime on the CBC Listen app. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, from Mississippi, Jesmyn Ward. Her National Book Award winner, Salvage the Bones, is an intimate and compelling look at Hurricane Katrina and the American South. Her new novel, Let Us Descend, is a haunting story about an enslaved girl in the years before the Civil War. That's next week. I hope you'll join me.
1: For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.